Welcome to Happened Here. People, places, and the stories they tell. I am Sharma Rahman, host of episode 8. Famous in their time. Fame will go by, and so long, I've had you fame. People from all walks of life can become famous in their time, and yet somehow slip from history's view. The three people in this episode all knew fame, yet are little known today. An opera diva and her diamonds. A fated 17th century actress with first night nerves. And an author who used her fame to help bring an end to slavery in 19th century Britain. Without further ado, let's begin. Royal Opera House, Covent Garden. The Diva and Her Diamonds. Written by Sarah Fleming, performed by Joanna Lumley. Two Bow Street policemen, undercover in unfamiliar costumes, try to blend in with the opera chorus. Covent Garden Opera House is just across the street from their police station in 1895, and these two have landed a somewhat unusual assignment. Keep an eye on the diva's bust. The bosom they were guarding? That of soprano Adelina Patti, megastar of the late 19th century, whose fame extended across Europe, Russia and the Americas. Her voice was clear, satin-rich, and able to reach to the back of the biggest concert halls. She was a coloratura soprano, singing complicated pieces with trills, staccati, embellishments, and extra high notes with ease and control. Her warm tone and vocal technique meant she was in demand to sing the most taxing roles. Operatic composer Verdi said she was the greatest singer he'd ever heard, and that her voice improved as it reached peak maturity. She was also very beautiful. Born to two Italian opera singers, she moved to New York in her childhood. At 16, Adelina made her operatic debut, and at 18, she received her first invitation to sing at Covent Garden. Adelina went on to live most of her life in Britain, barring numerous tours. She even bought a Welsh castle and lived there with her second and then third husband. Adelina was also a great businesswoman, demanding top billing and requiring to be paid in gold before a performance. She could command today's equivalent of £92,000 for one operatic performance. That's over four times what a modern opera star could get. Yes, the three tenors were rumoured to have been paid over a million for concerts, but for an opera performance, the fees are much lower. Why don't we know about her today? Probably because we have few recordings of her voice, and those we have are from her latter years, when her voice is past its best. With the voice lost in time, Adelina Patti has faded from our memories. Pre-20th century opera divas were real divas. They weren't even expected to turn up to rehearsals. They brought their own costumes to perform in, they stood centre stage, delivered their performance, raked in the money and left. Which brings us back to that February in 1895, when Adelina played Violetta in Verdi's La Traviata at Covent Garden. Adelina decided to go all out with her costume, to sparkle and glitter, 
and show off her wealth. She had all the diamonds in her extensive jewellery collection removed from their settings and stitched onto her costume's bodice. Their estimated value at the time was £200,000. Our two policemen in white tie and tails mingle with the chorus during the big party scenes where the maximum number of potential thieves are on stage to ensure that the diamonds are still on Adelina's bust when the curtain comes down. Quite how anyone thought that somebody could get away with a diamond heist in plain view is a bit of a mystery, but the job was done and the diamonds were where they belonged as the audience rose to their feet. Why all the fuss? £200,000 in 1895 is a cool £26,000,000 in today's money. <sighs> Quite some bodice. Just as well our two policemen were there after all. Despite a virtually unparalleled career, Adelina has faded into obscurity. It is hard, maybe, to judge a singer based on the written word, and her fame preceded the routine recording of performers by a tantalising few years. Harder still to judge Britain's first actresses, who only took to the stage in the 17th century. Until the reinstatement of Charles II to the throne, women had been banned from performing on the English stage. Women's parts had been played by boys whose voices hadn't broken yet. Pages. In 1660, Anne Marshall made history at the original Theatre Royal. Before this production of Shakespeare's Othello, the audience were warned of what they're about to see by a specially commissioned prologue which informed them, I came, unknown to any of the rest, to tell the news. I saw the lady dressed. The woman plays today, mistake me not. No man in gown or page in petticoat. The Theatre Royal, Veer Street, Lincoln's Inn Fields, London. Not a page in petticoats. Written and performed by Kate Reed. December 8th, 1660. Anne Marshall is waiting in the wings, about to be the first woman ever to play a female character on stage in England. No one knew how the audience would react, least of all Anne herself. Breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. You can do this. You can. You just walk out there and you say... You say... Oh, God. The first line. What's my first line? Oh, God. No, no, no. Stay calm, Anne. Stay calm. Brabantio's still talking, and we've got that massive Othello speech to go. You've got time. He always says it so bloody slowly anyway, drama queen. Look, they'll be so distracted by the fact you're a woman, they won't be listening to you anyway. They'll be looking at your hair, your figure, your... Does my bum look big in this costume? No, not the time, Anne. Focus. If you don't have an Adam's apple, they'll be thrilled. They're just happy to be at the theatre at all. Between the plagues and the Puritans, you forgetting your lines is the least of their worries. <sighs> look at them all out there. 
crammed in next to each other. They're just excited to be near each other again, to be at a playhouse, to not be covering their mouths and running in the opposite direction. Oh God, I wish they'd all run in the opposite direction so I wouldn't have to do this. I never thought I'd say it, but where's a plague when you need one? If a plague struck London at this very second, I wouldn't have to go out there. The whole show would be called to a halt, the playhouse closed, and my total humiliation avoided. Please, God, almighty God, I am not joking. Send a plague. (sighs) No, that's no good. It's not summer. It's December, for goodness sake. You know it's not plague season. Come on, Anne. (gasps) Or send Cromwell. Lord, you've resurrected people before. Do it again. I beg of you, our Father who art in heaven, send me Oliver Cromwell. Let him batter down those playhouse doors. Let him call us lascivious. Let him call us obscene. Just let him stop this play before my line. Oh, I wonder if the king's here. No, surely not. But, I mean, he's the reason all the playhouses are open again. He's the reason they're using actresses now. If I was him... I'd want to go and see what all my proclamations led to. Well, you know what? Charles, they've led to Anne Bloody Marshall worrying so much about how her bum looks in this bloody costume that she's forgotten her first bloody line. I can't do this. But you will, Anne. You will because you have to. And you have to be good. If you're not, then what? Charles realises his mistake. Women are banned from the stage again. Actresses disappear, fade out of existence. No. You have to walk out there. And you have to be better than every single man on that stage and every single boy player who's come before you. You are no page in petticoat. So, even if you don't want to do it, you have to because the others are depending on you. So Anne, Desdemona, breathe in, breathe out, and say your first line. My noble father, I do perceive here a divided duty. That's the one. From a courageous actress to a woman who wanted the world to bear witness to her story. Seven Solly Terrace, Pentonville, London. I have been a slave. I know what slaves feel. Written by James Rampton, performed by Jasmine Elcock. In 1800, 12-year-old Mary Prince was presented as a lot at a slave auction in Bermuda. I was soon surrounded by strange men who examined and handled me in the same manner that a butcher would a calf or a lamb he was about to purchase. Mary, who was sold for the sum of £57, in later life railed against the spectators who had failed to intervene when she was torn from her mother and sisters at the end of the auction. Did one of the many bystanders, who was looking at us so carelessly, think of the pain that wrung the hearts of the Negro woman and her young ones? No, no! Oh, 
Those white people have small hearts who can only feel for themselves. Mary's life only got harsher. For the next 15 years, she was sold from one butcher to another and wound up in Antigua working for John Wood, a notoriously pitiless owner. Amidst many cruelties, in December 1826, the furious Wood, discovering that Mary had married the freed slave Daniel James without his permission, had her horsewhipped. When Wood moved to London in 1828, his children insisted he took Mary with them. Later the same year, she managed to escape from his barbaric clutches and sought refuge at the Moravian Missionary Church in Hatton Garden, and hence to the Anti-Slavery Society, where she met its secretary, the leading abolitionist Thomas Pringle. Thomas employed Mary to work on the abolitionist campaign and in his household. He was gripped and horrified in equal measure by her tales of enslavement in the West Indies, but, as he would later make clear, The idea of writing Mary Prince's history was first suggested by herself. She wished it to be done. She said that good people in England might hear from a slave what a slave had felt and suffered. The history of Mary Prince, a West Indian slave, related by herself, was dictated at Pringle's home in Pentonville. Released in 1831, it was the first account of a black woman's life to be published in Britain. The book was very popular. Reprinted twice, it brewed a storm of abolitionist anger, changing the attitudes of many people towards slavery. Even then, however, some readers refused to believe Mary's descriptions of the extreme violence visited upon her. Thomas's wife, Margaret, was obliged to inform one dubious women's group that she had examined her employee and found that the whole of the back part of her body is distinctively scarred, chequered with the vestiges of severe floggings. Such doubts only fueled the fire already burning in Mary's account. In words that echo down the centuries, she said that I have been a slave myself. I know what slaves feel. The man that says slaves be quite happy in slavery, that they don't want to be free, that man is either ignorant or a lying person. Mary died in 1833, the year that the Slavery Abolition Act gave 800,000 slaves in the British colonies their freedom. Mary had succeeded. She had written her book to expose the truth about slavery and demand that Britain change its laws till all the poor blacks be given free and slavery done up for evermore. Three women, famous in their time, little known today. Happened here. People, places and the stories they tell. Hi, I'm Kate and I wrote and performed the Anne Marshall monologue, I was asked to write about the first women in theatre and decided to write my piece as a dramatic monologue from Anne's perspective. As an actor myself, I couldn't believe that women weren't allowed on stage until the 17th century. If you're interested in finding out more, come and join our community online. You can find us at happenedhere.com. But for now, everybody involved in Happened Here, the writers, the hosts, the performers, thanks you for listening. Do come again. We've got lots more stories to tell. Ah.
happened here.